Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to start discussing the outcome of Michigan's really bold redistricting reform. The legislative and congressional maps drawn by a commission of ordinary citizens. The new maps reflect a really different approach to representation for sure. But no surprise, there are a number of objections to the changes. We're going to talk with two reporters who covered the process from the beginning and then with a voting rights activist who says the maps dilute black voting power. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So every 10 years, we get to have a conversation about new political maps. The census triggers a redrawing that almost always delivers some change in who represents whom here in the state of Michigan, and frequently gives us a couple of surprises. But this year, this is not just the regular once in a decade discussion. This is the first time in the history of our state that we've seen that map, all of those maps, drawn by an independent citizens commission. Up until now, partisan politicians have been able to draw those maps behind closed doors in ways that have disproportionately advantaged whichever party happened to be in control of the legislature and the governor's office at the time. But now the process has, by and large, played out in real time, right out in the open. There's been significant time and space for the public to give our input along the way, and we've seen ordinary citizens, people who might just be neighbors of ours, sit down, look at all the data, and come up with what they think is the fairest way to represent the people of Michigan in Lansing and in Washington. Now, of course, the process hasn't been without its controversy. And now we're hearing about some of the first attempts to challenge those maps in court, something that happens every 10 years, regardless of the outcome. Today, though, we're going to talk about these new maps, their political implications, the lawsuits we're likely to see, and what's really changing here in Michigan. Not just the outcome, the final product, but the process here. And because it's such a historic moment for Michigan politics, we'll also talk about it tomorrow on the show with the commissioners who drew and approved these maps, something we also haven't really had an opportunity to do in the past. First up today, I've got two people who have been in the trenches throughout this entire process, covering the redistricting process every step of the way. Sergio Martinez Beltran is a state capital reporter for Bridge, Michigan. Sergio, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And Clara Hendrickson is a Report for America Corps member with the Detroit Free Press and PolitiFact. Clara, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I do want to dig into the specifics of these maps, which dropped on December 28th, right before New Year's Eve, and uh, I think caught a couple of us on our heels. I'm not sure we all expected them uh, quite at that, at that moment. But of course, since then, we have seen all kinds of reactions uh, to, these, to these maps. People are excited. Some people are very worried. Some people are very angry. But I want to talk about this moment in politics in Michigan first, the idea that we are about to have a debate, at least a, a little debate, uh, and probably one in court, uh, about maps that were drawn, as I said in the open, 
by people who could just be our neighbors rather than the politicians who would represent people on those maps. How big of a moment is this in Michigan? Sergio, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. This is what many have called an experiment in democracy, right? We have radically changed how the state draw these districts that last for a decade. And you have everyday citizens, just like you and I, who have never drawn a single map in their lives before, sitting down and learning about how to use a mapping software, learning about communities of interest, learning about the communities around them before making a decision and drawing the lines. And at the end of the day, their main goal was to make these maps uh, more fair in terms of partisanship. And that's something they say they've been able to accomplish. But, but yeah, it, this is huge and it's, it's a historic moment. So, so Clara, there was some controversy during the process about people meeting behind closed doors for certain things. That got resolved in court and we got to see what they were talking about when they were meeting behind closed doors. But but talk to us about how open this process has been from the jump and, and how different that is from what we normally see and I guess what it means to the, the, the outcome. In other words, the faith that people might be able to have in this outcome that, uh, that wasn't possible before. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it was an incredibly transparent process uh, with the exception of that closed door meeting. The commission conducted its business in an open session, which it is required to do under the Michigan Constitution. They live streamed hours long meetings. So you got to see the commission uh, worked together to try and to draw new maps and, and navigate an incredibly complex process and kind of thread the needle with all these different redistricting requirements that they were just trying to understand for the very first time as mapping novices, political novices. And they, they toured the state. They had many uh, statewide public hearing tours to solicit input on the map. They had a portal to solicit comments from folks. Many people submitted their own maps for the commission to, to consider. So it's just a stark contrast from what we saw in the past, which was many times the mappers meeting uh, behind closed doors, folks not knowing what the maps were going to look like until they were introduced um, at the, the very end of the process. And from the very outset here in Michigan, you had the public weighing in on what the lines should be. So I want to get started talking about the specific maps, both the congressional map and the legislative maps. And before we do it, I want to pitch out to listeners to get involved in this conversation. I, I would love to hear from people about what they think about these new maps. Uh, do, do you see your home, uh, your community, in a new place politically in Michigan? Did you get switched from uh, a district that includes some of your neighbors to a district that includes others of your neighbors. What do you think of the overall balance that was struck on the congressional map uh, and on the legislative maps? And what did you think of the process? Is this a process that you followed for the first time uh, that you were ever able to follow publicly? Uh, what did you think of the whole idea of having ordinary folks sit down and decide how we will be represented in Lansing in Washington instead of letting the politicians who represent us in Lansing decide that for us. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. So, uh, Sergio and Clara, I want to start with the congressional map. Uh, what are the most interesting and significant changes to this map from the one that has represented us for the last uh, 10 years? Clara, I'll start with you on this one. Right. So we always knew the map was going to look pretty radically different because Michigan had the second slowest population growth in the country over the past decade, we went from having uh, four, 14 congressional seats to now having 13. So it's going to be apples and oranges from, from the outset. 
But uh, I think what is really striking, um, we knew that the commission wasn't allowed to consider incumbency in, in crafting the map. So that much is clear uh, when they when they drafted this map and it was voted on, uh, we saw four districts pair the hometowns of incumbents together. But uh, as soon as the map was adopted, we also saw incumbents announce moves and claiming which district they're going to be running in. So there was a little bit of a reshuffling that happened. And I suspect that that those announcements came a little bit more quickly because the congressional incumbents had an opportunity to study the maps for weeks in advance before the final vote. But some some really notable changes. You have a, a Grand Rapids district now that is uh, sort of in the lean Democratic toss-up category, which I think has pleased some Democrats over in, in West Michigan. Um, you have Debbie Dingell's district now. Um, her Dearborn home base moved with South. Southfield, and she's announcing a run in the new Ann Arbor-based district where um, she has sort of a strong political constituency as well. And we're likely going to see um, perhaps a, a mashup between longtime Republican incumbent Bill, Fred Upton and Bill Heisinger in that western Lakeshore district. And Haley Stevens and Andy Levin have already announced that they'll be facing off against each other in that central Oakland district. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Sergio, one of the things that always... I, I think is is interesting in this process is the contrast or maybe the tension between what gets done in urban areas like Southeast Michigan, Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo, some of the other places uh, that you have dense population centers in Michigan and what happens in less populated places in rural Michigan, particularly in uh, the Upper Peninsula and Northern Michigan, where you you get to really low population densities in in some cases, and typically we hear complaints from both sides uh, about the way that the process uh, treats them. Uh, you 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 hear lots of of tensions about uh, communities of interest being divided in uh, in urban areas, and then you hear. Uh, uh, issues of of uh, other kinds of community dividing in rural areas, farming communities, for instance, I know, are really concerned about this particular map. So, so can you talk some about how these maps approach those differences, those stark differences in this very large geographic state, um, and and what we might expect to see in terms of where those complaints might go? We already know that there's going to be a Voting Rights Act challenge to this map. I suppose there could be others as well. Sure, and, and I think that truly the reason why we're seeing this tension this year, this time around, it's because the commission used a ranking criteria in order to draw their maps. And uh, on top of that criteria was the communities of interest. And it is, in a way, a novel concept for us here in Michigan. These are communities or, or a group of like-minded people that share economic values, cultural values, right? And and they have come out, you know, during the whole a map drawing process, these communities of interests came out and they told the commission, hey, my community needs to stay together. And you can split me from that other community, but please keep mine together. And we kept hearing that. Now the commission heard hundreds of these type of, of comments and they try their best to incorporate all of those communities of interest. If you ask some of the commissioners, for example, uh, Commissioner Anthony Eade, which is an independent, uh, he said that the map approved by the commission, the congressional map, does a better job at incorporating communities of interest, especially black voters uh, in Detroit. Now, we do know that in areas with a lower population, those districts are physically bigger or geographically bigger just because they have to encompass the, the constitutional uh, average or number of, of, of people, right, of residents. And so that's what we're seeing. So we see like districts from the Upper Peninsula, districts from the Upper Peninsula that goes all the way down into Traverse City and a little bit lower. Um, and then I think the the one of the biggest things here with this map, and, and I think we're going to talk about it later in the show, but what we have to stress it out here is the fact that this new map would eliminate the two majority black districts that we've had in the past, right? Uh, and 
in part it is because we're going from, like Clara said, from 14 seats to 13 seats, but also it's the approach the commission used to draw majority black districts or to treat the, the black population in Southeast Detroit, so in Southeast Michigan. So we're going to see a lot of this coming uh, in the next few days and a lot of people complaining about the maps. So I also want to talk about the political implications of this map. Uh, the, the early reads that I'm seeing on it say that it looks like it could produce a 7-6 split in, in Congress in favor of Democrats. That, that's not something we've seen in the early years of the, the decade in some time because Republicans have had control of the legislature the last few times we've we've drawn the map although over time we've we've certainly seen democrats be able uh, to make inroads in in those maps and to get uh, to get closer to a majority or to get a majority uh, let's talk about the politics though and and what this map tells us uh, about about michigan's politics at this point uh, sarah I'll, uh, I'll go i'll start with you this time yeah, I mean, definitely, I think it, it looks like good news for the Democrats, uh, in part because it makes districts more competitive. And what I find interesting is that, for example, the Grand, Rip, the Grand Rapids Bay District, uh, which would be the Congressional District 3, um, that one, uh, Peter Meyer, the Republican, is there. He's, he's the incumbent of that district. But we're seeing that we use uh, results, election results from the 2020 election and the 2016 election, that district leans Democratic by a little bit, but it still leans Democratic. So what we're seeing is that, I mean, he is a pretty moderate guy, and we're, it's going to be interesting to see if he gets paired with a Democrat or which Democrat is, he's going to get paired with and to see um, if that district could flip. And these are the districts that we're talking about, right, that could give the Democrats a uh, 7-6 edge in Congress. We're also seeing that um, there is a district that includes Saginaw and Flint. Um, Democrat Dan Kildee is there, as well as uh, Republican John Moenar. And that district leans Democratic, despite including a little bit more of the rural Republican bastions areas of the northern part of the district. That district, again, is competitive, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I think that without a doubt, Stephen, we're going to see some of the most expensive races uh, in the history of the state uh, in the next few months. Uh, Clara Hendrickson, this is uh, a mid-year, uh, midterm uh, year for congressional races. Uh, as Sergio says, there's there's going to be a, a lot of fighting in primaries that we don't always see among sitting members. What else do you see politically uh, out of this map? Right. So I think uh, this congressional map does give Democrats their best chance in years to win a majority of Michigan's congressional delegation. But I always want to be a little bit careful here because no elections have been held in these districts, of course. And redistricting is all about making predictions about the future of politics based on what's happened in the past. And sometimes those predictions turn out to be wrong. I just look at the lines drawn by Republicans in 2011 intended to advantage them. And by the end of the decade, we saw two Democrats, Haley Stevens and Alyssa Slotkin, flipping two districts that were expected to be solidly Republican. That said, um, the commission did look at past election data from the past decade and saw that if you run a, a hypothetical election combining all the results from the, the major statewide contests from 2012 to 2020, you'll see Democrats win a majority with um, a 7-6 split in the congressional delegation. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the new legislative and congressional maps here in the state of Michigan, drawn for the first time ever by a citizens panel. Our neighbors sat down and figured out who should represent us in Lansing and Washington. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think about that process and the outcome. Call and tell us what you think of these new maps that we will live with for the next 10 years, of course, barring court intervention in, uh, in any of them. Uh, what do you think about the process that we use to have ordinary citizens make these decisions instead of politicians, which is the way it has been almost forever. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour, as we will tomorrow for the full hour as well, about the results of Michigan's grand experiment in redistricting in 2018. We voted as a state to change our state constitution to create a citizens redistricting panel that would decide who represents whom in Lansing and in Washington, rather than leaving that decision and that process to politicians. We now have the first results of that process after a year of a citizens panel meeting and talking about uh, how the maps should be drawn. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about what your reaction is to these maps. There are a lot of changes on these maps. There are a lot of things that don't look the way they do right now. There are a lot of districts that have very different shapes uh, than they do right now, which means that the politicians who now represent us in Lansing, some of us in, uh, in Washington, some of them will have to take a different approach to running for re-election. They may have to move. They may have to think about uh, maybe uh, doing something, something else. Uh, is that the kind of outcome that you were expecting? from this process. Uh, do you think that in the end, what we've come up with is fair? Fair to people here in Southeast Michigan, where you have the densest population here in the state of Michigan, but also fair to people in places in the far-flung Upper Peninsula, uh, where there aren't as many people, but all of the questions about representation still apply. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. We've got two great guests right now with us. Sergio Martinez-Beltran covers the state capitol for Bridge, Michigan, and Clara Hendrickson is a Report for America Corps member with the Detroit Free Press and PolitiFact. Let's start with Greg in Midtown. Greg, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah, I see this has been completely illegal in the city of Detroit because the founding father, as I was told on this very program some years ago, that Detroit is landlocked. Like other places in uh, Florida, George Washington wanted to make sure that his generals were able to segregate. And so Detroit is landlocked and cannot expand like other municipalities around the country. Therefore, redistricting doesn't seem or would not apply here because we can't change our boundaries. So how is it that the voting districts can be changed? Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting question, Greg. It's not it's not the kind of thing that I've heard discussed in the redistricting conversation uh, before. But this idea of uh, Detroit and how Detroit is represented has been around for a long time, but chiefly because the city continues to lose population and it's hard to, to, to figure out how to fairly represent Detroiters. I mean, you could draw one district, I suppose, around the whole city and say that's the district that we get, although for many years we've had two districts that mostly represent the city, and those districts have had high expectation for uh, non-white people to be able to, to win there. But I, I, I think the, the, the issue you raise is interesting, not just in terms of Congress, but also in terms of uh, the state legislature. I want to give our guests uh, a chance to respond. Clara Hendrickson, uh, talk about how Detroit is treated uh, on all of these maps, not just Congress, but also uh, the, the Lansing maps. So I think Metro Detroit is where we saw probably some of the most significant changes when it comes to the maps, particularly the, the new state legislative maps. 
And and that's in part because the commission followed different redistricting criteria this time around. They were required to uh, consider county and municipal boundaries uh, when drawing the lines, but they didn't have to keep cities or counties completely intact. And in past redistricting cycles, the goal was to to split counties um, as little as as possible. And so we we see now state legislative districts that cross north of Eight Mile Road, um, and that was not the case in the state house or the state senate maps previously. So we are seeing these interesting pairings of predominantly black Detroit neighborhoods now with predominantly white suburban communities in Oakland and Macomb counties. And the commission says that that represents an improvement from what's been current, from what's been in place for years, and um, that the new districts are actually going to perhaps increase um, Detroit's representation and the representation of black voters in the city and in Lansing. But uh, current and former Detroit lawmakers are planning to sue the commission alleging that uh, Detroit's representation in state politics is at risk. Hmm. Uh, Sergio, what uh, what should we make of the way Detroit comes out in these maps? I mean, I think that one of the main concerns that a lot of Black lawmakers and Black activists in Detroit have is that the way the districts are drawn, their candidate of preference might not get elected in a primary, meaning that they might not have the person that they think better represent them in Lansing. And I think that is a a concern and something we have to pay attention to. But like Lara mentioned, the commission is saying that this is the best way to represent the, the, the people, right? And, you know, there is a district that I keep thinking about, one that goes from the Gross Point area all the way to Sterling Heights. There's another district that goes uh, from the Highland Park area all the way to uh, Birmingham. And so what we're seeing is that the commission drew districts that went from the city or from the Detroit area, Metro Detroit, all the way stretch it up to wider districts, if, if you know, if you could say. Uh, and that way, um, they say the commission is creating more opportunities for Black voters to elect their candidates of choice. I think one important thing that, that again, Clara mentioned earlier, is that a lot of this is predictive, right? These are new districts. We have not run an election uh, under these new districts. So these are the predictions that many, that the commission has. These are the predictions that the commission's uh, experts have. And also you have the predictions that black activists and people that have lived the experience of living in Detroit have. And so it's, it's challenging to, to get all of them and draw like a map that it's fair for, for everyone and that makes sense for everyone, to be honest. Hmm. So we are going to talk a little more about this subject in particular uh, in a few minutes here on the show with uh, Keith Williams, who's chair of the Michigan Democratic Party Black Caucus uh, and a plaintiff in the lawsuit that is that was announced yesterday uh, challenging these new district maps over concerns about minority representation. Uh, I think that's going to be a fascinating conversation. I think this is going to be a fascinating argument in in court, partially because uh, what the commission appears to have done, in in my judgment, is try to extend uh, extend districts from the city into the suburbs, in the hopes that uh, you could have more representation uh, uh, across those lines, but also uh, taking into account the demographic changes that that are happening mm-hmm. in our state. No one has really talked a whole lot. Uh, in this whole process about the fact that there are now more African-Americans living outside the city of Detroit Mm -hmm. in Metro Detroit than inside the city of Detroit, which gives you more possibilities for electing non-white representatives who may not live in the city of Detroit, um, may live in Southfield, may live in Oak Park, uh, may live in parts of Macomb County, um, and would win those seats. And I think the, the tension between uh, white and non-white uh, uh, election outcomes and city versus non-city is something that I think could could end up being a really interesting dimension of that of that conversation. It's not one that we've had before. We have always assumed that city means black and suburb mm-hmm. means white. That's not true uh, as much as it was uh, before here in Southeast Michigan. Um, uh, again, Greg, really appreciate the call uh, and the and the comments. Let's go next to Paul in Clarkston. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. 
Uh-huh. I just wanted to share um, my thoughts on, uh, you know, there's sort of an obsession with this idea that the Upper Peninsula is not fairly represented. And I'd like to push back on that. Um, the idea of a bicameral uh, congressional system is that the Senate uh, is really where rural areas or farming communities have their power. Mm-hmm. Um, so they may not have uh, the strength that they, they might want in the House of Representatives, but they really exert a lot of power over the rest of the state through the Senate. So I think the interest in if voters in Detroit have a fair voice is really a valid one because the voters in the Upper Peninsula really have their strength uh, when it comes to the Senate. Hmm. Uh, Paul, I really appreciate you calling and making that point. Um, I have seen as much uh, as much criticism, I guess, of these maps, I feel, from folks in the UP uh, as I have from people in southeast Michigan uh, who are who are talking about these maps. We, we always have some some rural areas that that feel they're they're badly treated by this process. Um, particularly in the state legislature, there's really not much of a question about how the UP will be represented in in, in Congress. Um, but Sergio and Clara, I want to talk just a little about this, this issue in the UP uh, when it comes to both the state House and the state Senate and the objections that people there uh, are finding to those things. Uh, Clara, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, well, I think Paul raises a good point, which is that when it comes to redistricting, we're looking at districts that encompass the same population size. So political power tends to move with population trends. So you get more representation in in urban areas because that's where more people live. Um, And I I think just sort of from a big picture standpoint, you know, it's not uh, impossible to gerrymander less densely populated areas, but some have joked that, you know, it's quite easy to gerrymander Metro Detroit. It's a little bit harder to accomplish that in the Upper Peninsula. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there isn't, uh, there aren't some serious concerns and legitimate grievances folks have with, with the maps up there and how they're represented and how they were drawn. Uh, I think part of the challenge is that while the commission did reference specific communities while they were drawing the lines, there isn't sort of a community by community account of which places were considered and split up and how those decisions were made. So we might see something like that coming in the final report that the commission will produce. But for the time being, it's hard to know the uh, community by community justification for how the the lines were drawn. Hmm. Uh, Sergio, uh, what about this rural question? Not just in the UP, I've heard uh, some complaints from places like Berrien County, which is just outside of Lansing, uh, about the way in which uh, they've drawn the lines here. Yeah, I mean, we we also heard it from a lot of people in public comment. And, you know, one of the things that that I know has caused some concerns among uh, rural residents is that they felt that they didn't have representation on the commission. Uh, There was only one commissioner who always spoke up on behalf of the uh, rural rural residents. She's from a rural uh, community. The rest of them are more from, from urban areas. And so that was the concern too that many uh, folks in the UP, folks in uh, Midland and, and that area, they have also said, hey, I'm not represented and the way you're drawing the lines, it's going to have an impact on our livelihoods as well. So it is, it is an interesting point. Uh, I think a lot of the focus has been on Southeast Michigan, just because it is very populated and a lot of the of the complaints and probably the legal challenges are coming or back then we knew that they were going to come from uh, the Detroit area. But but I mean, it is a fair point and, and I think that um, a lot of the the commissioners paid attention to the UP. It's just also that they didn't know how to handle the UP, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I should also correct myself. Barron County is not it's not a suburban Lansing County. That's uh, the southwest, uh, the far southwest county that uh, that borders Indiana. Uh, I was thinking of uh, Clinton and Eaton counties uh, that that surround Lansing. Um, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments, Paul uh, and Clarkston. Let's go next to 
Chuck in Franklin. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Boy, this is another great program you've done on uh, the redistricting uh, commission and the process this year. Congratulations to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, We've been talking mostly about the congressional districts, um, I guess rightly so. I don't see a whole lot of change um, net net uh, uh, politics wise um, in the congressional maps. Um, I do see some dramatic changes in the state Senate maps. And before we end the program today, I thought uh, it would be good to talk about um, what is likely to be happening in the state Senate maps. And maybe mm-hmm. it's too soon before we know where everybody's going to run. But um, um, we Republicans, um, I think, worked harder on gerrymandering <laughs> the state Senate than, than even the congressional maps uh, as of 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, um, Chuck, I'm glad you called and and raised that issue. It's one of the things that I think uh, you're right, is uh, one of the the, the most dramatic changes, I guess, that that, that we've seen, which is that state Senate map. The state Senate has been really lopsided for uh, a long time, as you point out, uh, and and, and purposely so because uh, Republicans were able to, to gerrymander uh, that as as much as they were, uh, Sergio and uh, Clara, I want to get your reactions to how different that will be and what we'll see in reaction from people who hold those seats now uh, in terms of how they decide where to run and I guess whether to run. Sergio, uh, what what do you think? Yes. Yeah, so right now, the Republicans have 22 seats in the state Senate. Democrats have 16. What we're seeing is that uh, based on the analysis the commission has done, uh, of, the, of previous election cycles, we're seeing that that would flip and that Democrats could have 21 seats and Republicans 17 seats. Now, again, this is predictive. Anything could happen. But but we're seeing that the map leans more Democratic uh, than we've seen in the past. What's interesting is that because the commission didn't pay attention to incumbent seats, um, we're seeing that the map has 14 open seats. Six of them are because of term limits. And then four, there, there are four districts uh, in which current incumbents face, face each other. And so it's going to be interesting to see who's going to move in terms of, you know, uh, Republicans, for example, there is this district, Senate District 20, uh, which uh, includes Benton Harbor, uh, a little bit uh, and all the way to Kentwood. That has Kim Lasada and Eric Nested, both Republicans, running against each other. Mm-hmm. There's also um, a district that includes uh, Greenville, Ionia, uh, and it has Rick Outman and John Bumstead, two Republicans running against each other. Now, I think one of the most interesting things here is that there is a district, the 8th Senate District in Oakland and Wayne counties, where there are three incumbents facing each other. Those are Democratic Senators Mallory McMorrow, Rosemary Bayer, and Marshall Bullock. Um, We have heard some people talk to each other. Um, You know, Mallory McMorrow told us that she was going to grab a beer with uh, Bullock and try to figure out what they were going to do. We do know that that uh, Rosemary Bayer is planning on moving. And, you know, there is this other district that goes from uh, Gross Point all the way to uh, Sterling Heights, which has Senator Stephanie Chang, a Democrat, with Paul Wayno, another Democrat. But what we're hearing is that Senator Chang is actually moving to an adjacent district, and that would put her against Senator Adam Ollier, another Democrat. So there's a lot of considerations in the next few weeks. And, and we are, I think we're going to see a lot of other uh, lawmakers grabbing beers with their fellow colleagues and trying to hash it out before they go into a primary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sergio Martinez Beltran and Clara Hendrickson. It was really great to have the two of you here to talk about this. And, and congrats on the work that both of you did covering uh, this issue just from the, the beginning. It has really been something to watch how all of this has developed, and you have been our eyes in that room. So thanks very much for being with us on Detroit today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, uh, but we're going to take your calls and social media comments as well. We're going to talk with Keith Williams, who is chair of the Michigan Democratic Party Black Caucus, one of the plaintiffs who has already decided to challenge these new maps uh, for the way that they treat uh, non-white voters. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So not everyone is happy with Michigan's new legislative and congressional maps. In fact, there is a lot of criticism coming from all sides of the political spectrum. Yesterday, a group of current and former lawmakers and political activists announced their intention to file the first major lawsuit challenging the maps themselves. They claim that these maps violate the Voting Rights Act by diluting minority populations and districts, especially here in Southeast Michigan. Here to talk about the lawsuit is one of the people who is challenging those maps. Keith Williams is chairman of the Michigan Democratic Party Black Caucus. Keith, welcome back to Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning. How are you yeah. guys doing? It's great to, it's great to have you here uh, to talk about this. So let's start with your concerns uh, about these maps, uh, congressional and legislative. Tell me why you think they violate the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, because it doesn't meet the 50% threshold. It's the 50% voting age threshold. Right now, the maps, from what I'm seeing, they're down like to 40%, and that's not 50%. And that's why we're challenging. Right. So, uh, but there isn't anything that I can find in VRA case law that says that voting populations of opportunity districts need to be 50% or more to elect minority uh, representatives. The commission and redistricting experts that we've talked with in recent weeks have talked about that number being closer to 40%. And nationally, uh, the average district that is uh, represented by uh, a non-white person has a non-white population of about 40 percent. So tell me why, in, in your mind, 50 is the number rather than 40. Uh, when I looked up the, uh, the law, the Voting Rights Act, it said 50 percent. And I don't know what the other foundation or the basis they came up with, 40 percent. I just say this, you know, blacks... Black folks need to represent black folks. Uh, there's been historically we've been doing that. And then, and then the most important thing is the most intriguing thing is we went from 17 house seats. Now we're down to five. And then yesterday I saw a map, Stephen, mm-hmm. on the east side. It's two blocks. Two blocks on the east side is going to be spread all the way out to uh, New Boston. It, it touches uh, Clinton Township. And let's think of from that perspective, that guy who's in New Boston, preferably is a white guy, white Democrat or whatever, he has no relationship to the folks in the city of Detroit. So how can you represent me? Hmm. So so uh, when when we were doing this before, when we were letting politicians do this, their approach was to essentially pack black voters into districts in the city of Detroit to prevent them from influencing the outcome in suburban districts. Um, do you think these maps are, these new maps, are better or worse, I guess, than the ones that are currently in place, which were done specifically to disenfranchise, essentially, black voters? But, but these maps are worse because it disenfranchises. It gets back to, you've got 17 house districts, and then you got four, and now you're down to five. That's disenfranchisement. And I thought about this, and I keep thinking about this, even when I was doing reparations. What, what is it about self-determination? You know, shouldn't we have the right to determine our destiny and who we vote for? So, so one of the things that I think is really interesting in the map drawing that's, that's taking place right now is the demographic change that's happening here in southeast Michigan. Yes. So uh, for the first time, ever, I believe, uh, the census last year showed that there are more African Americans living outside the city of Detroit here in Southeast Michigan in the suburbs than there are living inside the city. And so as the commission was drawing these maps, one of the things that they had to take into account in terms of producing uh, you know, fair opportunities for African Americans to represent ourselves in Lansing and in Washington was the idea that you could have a district that stretched from inside the city out into the suburbs and maintain that 40% number that the case law really talks about in terms of what's an acceptable uh, VRA opportunity 
district and get more representation, but that that representation might come from the suburbs rather than the city. In other words, African-Americans who live in the suburbs could get elected to represent Detroiters. Now, we don't see that in the state legislature right now, but we do see it in Congress. Brenda Lawrence, who is from Southfield, represents a large portion of Detroit. Now, I'm not defending that particular district. Yeah, go ahead, Keith. Stephen, can I say this to you? I was part of when Brenda first got elected. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have won if it wasn't for Detroit. Uh, That's true. But the, the fact that she lives outside the city and represents the city, uh, and that so much of her district is in the suburbs, uh, it, it proves that you can get to that level of self-determination that you're talking about without drawing districts that, um, that, are, just, uh, that, that are so predominantly uh, in the city, or, for instance, uh, 50% African-American. But, Stephen, Brenda was an anomaly to me. She was born and raised in Detroit. She went to Pershing. Right. So she did have some uh, semblance of what was happening in the community. So yes, so do you say that's an anomaly? I, I, I guess I'm not sure that I agree with that anymore because the African-Americans who live in the suburbs, all uh, the, the people who live in the suburbs are Detroiters by yes, birth, I, I most of them. Point. They're Brenda, the, right? <laughs> yeah, I get your point. So all you do is just sifting, sifting, uh, uh, shifting from Detroit to Southland with the same people that were born and raised in Detroit. Right. Okay, I'm saying if the people who were born and raised in, this, in, in, in the suburbs in Oakland County, for example, has no understanding of, of what's happening in Detroit. Sure. So they go, their politics is geared for that area. Brenda's politics, she learned the politics in Detroit, but guess what? We helped her get her over the top. A, a, a few of us, okay? Absolutely. Because I, I was a former Wayne County commissioner, and majority of her area was a part of my area. Okay, so she did. She played the politics right, but see, I'm saying that just to, but just to go create, uh, uh, tell somebody from the suburbs that it never has anything to do with the city choice. It would be hard. Yeah, yeah. So, so I also want to ask you about the party. Uh, advantages that these maps draw. And I, I think what some people would say is that it's better overall for African Americans who live in Detroit or live in the suburbs or who live anywhere uh, if there's a better chance to elect Democrats to those seats than Republicans. And if you look, for instance, at the state Senate map, uh, people are talking now about uh, Democrats perhaps controlling the state Senate for the first time since the 1980s because of the way that this was changed. Is that not, is that, I, I guess I want to have you talk about the, 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 the merits of that kind of change alongside the racial considerations that, uh, the, the, you know, that are mandated by uh, the federal government to make sure that people have opportunity to, to win. The fact that so many of those districts are Democratic has something to do with the number of African-Americans who are, who are in them, right? Hey, I, let me just say this to you. What the argument in the streets now is, is that the old Democrats versus black folks, the Democratic Party versus black folks. I get it. I'm a, uh, uh, the MDP Black Caucus part of the Democratic Party. I want Democrats to win all over the state. Because I think the Republican Party's playing games. They, you know, they were trying to they they split. They want you know, want black folks to have our uh, our uh, our districts. But but then the Democrats, some Democrats lose. I get that. But the bottom line, I get back to self uh, the self determination perspective. It should be an either or. It should be a way they design it where where they can get the black folks as well as get and then we can uh, we can. Uh, uh, we can serve ourselves too. So I, I just think whoever did the maps, you know, they skewed the maps to to that point. But guess what? You don't go from 17 house districts to five and leave us out there and say uh, be good soldiers and, and and do what the Democratic Party says. I'm a Democrat. Hmm. I want to see us win at all costs, but the not at all costs, but within the the guidelines of voting laws and things like that. Sure. But come on. You know, you know, black folks, we want to we are the most loyal people to the political process. 
and I look at our condition, our living conditions. I look at the educational conditions and our economic conditions, and it's not gotten any better. So guess what? You know, you know, we need to just need to think about this. We have rights in this country just like everybody else, sure. and and we should have a right to self determination. Yeah. Uh, I quickly want to take a phone call. We're running out of time, but Chris in Detroit, go ahead. Oh, hey, thanks, Stephen. Um, I just want to say, uh, echo your previous callers. I love this conversation. I think it's really great. And in particular, I wanted to say I really appreciate you trying to dig in and beyond the perhaps sometimes oversimplistic. It's tough, right? Detroit, I understand it's unique. It's a proud black city. It should be a, you know, center of black power, black political power, cultural power, et cetera. But also it's not always been, may not always be, is not only a black city. And I think this is why it's so complicated. I mean, this idea that Detroit is synonymous with black is powerful. It also has limitations in certain extents. And so I really appreciate your argument, and I'm very curious to see how things go, this idea that perhaps you are extending the power of Detroit and that black vote into, as you highlighted, I did not know, now there are more black Metro Detroiters living outside the city than within. Um, I mean, I think that's the reality, and I, I am hopeful that we move beyond. Yeah, Let's be proud of Detroit. Let's speak to black power. But Detroit is not always, or maybe it is. I don't know. That's the complication. Yeah, it's a, I, think it's, I think that it's that there's some nuance that, that we've got to at least uh, account for. Keith Williams, uh, it's always great to talk with you, you know, about these things. He can't speak for black folks. Well, well black, of course, he's, he's not. Yeah, no, he's not. I don't think he's. I don't think he's trying to do that, but you're right. I mean, we don't we don't want to see that happening either. Uh, Keith Williams, it's always great to talk with you, though, about these things, and thanks for coming on uh, the show. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. We're going to talk about redistricting again tomorrow. We're going to talk with some of the members of the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission to hear about how they made their decisions. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.